Chapter 5 of My Brilliant Career. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ray Smith. My Brilliant Career by Miles Franklin. Chapter 5. Disjointed Sketches and Grumbles. It was my duty to rare the potties. This is the most godless occupation in which it has been my lot to engage. I did a great amount of thinking while feeding them, for, by the way, I am afflicted with the power of thought, which is a heavy curse. The less a person thinks and inquires regarding the way and wherefore and the justice of things when dragging along through life, the happier it is for him, and undoubtedly, trebly so, for her. Poor little calves, slave to the greed of man, profit of the mothers with which nature has provided them, and compelled to exist on milk from the separator, often thick, sour, and icy cold. Besides the milking I did, before I went to school every morning, for which I had to prepare myself and the younger children, to which we had to walk two miles, I had to feed thirty calves and wash the breakfast dishes. On returning from school in the afternoon, often in a state of exhaustion from walking in the sun, I had the same duties over again, and in addition, boots to clean and home lessons to prepare for the morrow. I had to relinquish my piano practice for want of time. Ah, those short, short nights of rest and long, long days of toil. It seems to me that dairying means slavery in the hands of poor people who cannot afford hired labor. I am not writing of dairy farming. The genteel and aristic profession as eulogized in leading articles of agricultural newspapers and is taught in agricultural colleges. I am depicting practical dairying as I have lived it and seen it lived by dozens of families around me. It takes a great deal of work to produce even one pound of butter fit for market. At the time I mentioned it was three pence and four pence per pound, so it was much work and small pay. It was slaving and delving from morning till night. Sundays, weekdays, and holidays all alike were work days for us. Hard graft is a great leveler. Household drudgery, wood cutting, milking, and gardening soon roughen the hands and dim the outside polish. When the body is wearied with much toil, the desire to cultivate the mind or the cultivation it has already received, is gradually wiped out. Thus it was with my parents. They had dropped from swelldom to peasantism. They were among and of the peasantry. None of their former acquaintances came within their circle now, for the iron ungodly hand of class distinction was settled surely down upon Australian society. Australia's democracy is only a tradition of the past. I say not against the lower life. The peasantry are the bulwark of every nation. The life of a peasant is, to a peasant who is a peasant with a peasant's soul, when times are good and when seasons smile, a grand life. It is honest, clean, and wholesome. But the life of a peasant to me is purgatory. Those around me worked from morning till night and then enjoyed their well-earned sleep. They had but two states of existence, work and sleep. There was a third part in me which cried out to be fed. I longed for the arts. Music was a passion with me. I borrowed every book in the neighborhood and stole hours from rest to read them. This told upon me and made my physical burdens harder for me than for other children of my years around me. That third was the strongest part of me. In it I lived a dream life with writers, artists, and musicians. Hope, sweet, cruel, delusive hope, whispered in my ear that life was long with much by and by, and in that by and by my dream life would be real. So on I went with that gleaming lake in the distance beckoned me to come and sail on its silver waters, and inexperience, conceited blind inexperience, failed to show the impassable pit between it and me, to return to the daring. 
Old and young alike, we earned our scant livelihood by the heavy sweat of our brows. Still, we did gain an honest living. We were not ashamed to look day in the face and fought our way against all odds with the stubborn independence of our British ancestors. But when 1894 went out without rain, and 95, hot, dry, pitiless 95, succeeded it, there came a time when it was impossible to make a living. The scorched furnace breath winds shriveled every blade of grass, dust, and the moan of starving stock filled the air. The vegetables became a thing of the past. The calves I had reared died one by one, and the cows followed in their footsteps. I had left school by then, and my mother and father and I spent the days in lifting our cows. When our strength proved inadequate, the help of neighbors had to be called in, and father would give his service in return. Only a few of our more well-to-do neighbors had been able to send their stock away, or had any better place to which to transfer them. The majority of them were in as tight a plate as ourselves. This cow lifting became quite a trade, the whole day being spent in it and discussing the bad prospect ahead if the drought continued. Many an extra line of care furrowed the brows of the disheartened bushmen then. Not only was their living taken from them by the drought, but there is nothing more heart-rending than to have poor beasts, especially dairy cows, so familiar, valued, and loved, pleading for food day after day in their pitiless, dumb way, when one has it not to give. We show ourselves of all but the bare necessities of life, but even they for a family of ten are considerable, and it was a mighty tussle to get both ends within cover of meeting. We felt the full force of the heavy hand of poverty, the most stinging kind of poverty too, that which still holds up its head and keeps an outside appearance. Far more grinding is this than the poverty inherited from generations which is not ashamed of itself, and has not the accompaniment, the wounded pride and humiliation which attacked us. Some there are who argue the poverty does not mean unhappiness. Let those try what it is to be destitute of even one companionable friend, what it means to be forced to exist in an alien sphere of society, what it is like to be unable to afford a stamp to write to a friend, let them long as passionately as I have longed for reading and music, and be unable to procure it because of poverty. Let poverty force them into doing work against which every fiber of their being revolts, as it has forced me, and then see if their lives will be happy. My school life has been dull and uneventful. The one incident of any note, which has been the day that the teacher, better known as Old Harris, stood up to the inspector. The latter was a precise collar-and-cuffs sort of little man. He gave one the impression of having all his ideas on the subject he thought worthy of attention carefully culled and packed in his brain pan, and neatly labeled, so that he might without fluster pounce upon any of them at a moment's warning. He was gentlemanly and respectable, and discharged his duty precariously in a manner reflecting credit on himself and his position. But, comparing the mind of a philanthropist to the murrumbidgee in breadth, his, in comparison, might be likened to the flow of a bucket of water in a dray rut. On the day in question, a precise hot one it was, he had finished examining us in most subject, and was looking at our copy books. He looked up from them, ahem, <clears throat> and fastidiously straightened his waistcoat. Mr. Harris! Yes, sir. Comparisons are odious, but unfortunately I am forced to draw one now. Yes, sir. This writing is much inferior to that of our town scholars. It is very shaky and irregular. Also, I notice that the children seem stupid and dull. I don't like putting it so plainly, but, in fact, uh, they seem to be possessed with the proverbial stupidity of country people. How do you account for this? 
poor old Harris. In spite of his drunken habits and inability to properly discharge his duties, he had a warm heart and much fellowshiply humanity to in him. He understood and loved his pupils, and would not have had aspirations cast upon them. Besides, the nip he had taken to brace himself to meet the inspector had been two or three, and they robbed him of the discretion which otherwise might have kept him silent. Sir, I can and will account for it. Look you at every one of these children, every one, right down to this little tot, indicating a little girl of five, has to milk and work hard before and after school, besides a walk on an average two miles to and from school in this infernal heat. Most of the elder boys and girls milk on an average fourteen cows morning and evening. You try that treatment for a week or two, my fine gentleman, and then see if your fist doesn't ache and shake so that you can't write at all. See if you won't look a trifle dozy. Stupidity of country people be hanged if you had to work from morning till night in the heat and dust and get precious little for it too. I bet you wouldn't have much time to scrape your fingernails, read science notes, and look smart. Here he took off his coat and shaped up to his superior. The inspector drew back in consternation. Mr. Harris, you forgot yourself. At this juncture, they went outside together. What happened there was we never knew. That is all we heard of the matter except the numerous garbling accounts which were carried home that afternoon. A drought ideal. Sybil, what are you doing? Where is your mother? I'm ironing. Mother's down at the fowl house seeing after some chickens. What do you want? It was my father who addressed me. Time, 2 o'clock p.m. Thermometer hung in the shade of the veranda, registering 105 and a half degrees. I see Black Shaw coming across the flat. Call your mother. You bring the leg ropes. I've got the dog leg. Come at once. We'll give the cows another lift. Poor devils. Might as well knock them in the head at once, but there might be rain next moon. This drought can't last forever. I called mother, got the leg ropes, and set off, pulling my sunbonnet closely over my face to protect my eyes from the dust, which was driving from the west in blinding clouds. The dog leg to which father was referring was three poles about eight or ten feet long, strapped together so they could be stood up. It was an arrangement father had devised to facilitate our labor in lifting the cows. A fourth and longer pole was placed across the fork formed by the three, and to one end there was tied a couple of leg ropes after being placed around the beast, one beneath the flank and one around the girth. On the other end of this pole we put our weight while one man would lift the tail and another with the horns. Newcham cows would sulk, and we would have great work with them. But those used to the performance would help themselves, and up they'd go as nice as a daisy. The only art needed was to draw the pole back quickly before the cows could move, or the lake ropes would pull them over again. On this afternoon, we had six cows to lift. We struggled manfully and got five on their feet, and then proceeded to where the last one was lying, back downwards, on a shadeless stony spot on the side of the hill. The men slewed her around by the tail, while Mother and I fixed the dog leg and adjusted the ropes. We got the cow up, but the poor beast was so weak it knocked about that she immediately fell down again. We resolved to let her have a few minutes' spell before making another attempt at lifting. There was not a blade of grass to be seen, and the ground was too dusty to sit on. We were too overdone to make more than one-word utterances, so waiting silently in the blazing sun, closing our eyes against the dust. Weariness, weariness. A few light wind-smitten clouds made wan streaks across the white sky, haggard with the fierce, relentless glare of the afternoon sun. Weariness was written across my mother's delicate, careworn features, and found expression in my father's knitted brows and dusty face. 
Blackshaw was weary and said so, as he wiped the dust, made mud with perspiration off his cheek. I was weary, my limbs ached with the heat and work. The poor beast stretched at our feet was weary. All nature was weary, and seemed to sing a dirge to that effect in the furthest breath wind which roared along the trees on the low ranges at our back and smote the parched and thirsty ground. All were weary, all but the sun. He seemed to glory in his power, relentless and untiring, as he swung boldly in the sky, triumphantly leering down upon his helpless victims. Weariness, weariness. This was my life. My life. My career. My brilliant career. I was fifteen. Fifteen! A few fleeting hours, and I would be old as those around me. I looked at them as they stood there, weary, and turning down the other side of the hill of life. When young, no doubt they had hoped for, and dreamed of better things, had even known them. But here they were. This had been their life, this was their career. It was, and in all probability would be, mine too. My life, my career, my brilliant career. Weariness, weariness. The summer sun danced on. Summer is fiendish, and life is a curse, I said in my heart. What a great, dull, hard rock the world was. On it were the few barren, narrow ledges, and on those, by exerting ourselves so that the force wears off our fingernails, it allows us to hang for a year or two, and then hurls us off into outer darkness and oblivion, perhaps to endure worse torture than this. The poor beast moaned. The lifting had strained her, and there were patches of hide worn off her the size of breakfast plates, sore and more harrowing to look at. It takes great suffering to wring the moan from the patience of a cow. It turned my head away, and with the impatience of one-side reasoning common to fifteen, asked God what he meant by this. It is well enough to heap suffering on human beings, seeing it is supposed to be merely a probation for a better world, but animals, poor innocent animals, why are they tortured so? Come now, we'll lift her once more, said my father. At it we went again. It is surprising that weight there is in the poorest cow. With great struggling we got her to her feet once more, and were carefully this time to hold her till she got steady on her legs. Father and mother at the tail and Blackshaw and I on the horns. We marched her home and gave her a bran mash. Then we turned to our work in the house, while the men sat and smoked and spat on the veranda, discussing the drought for an hour, at the end of which time they went to help someone else with their stock. I made up the fire and we continued our ironing, which had been interrupted some hours before. It was hot and pleasant work on such a day. We were forced to keep the doors and windows closed on account of the wind and the dust. We were hot and tired, and our feet ached so that we could scarcely stand on them. Weariness, weariness. Summer is fiendish, and life is a curse, I said in my heart. Day after day, the drought continued. Now and again there would be a few days of the raging wind before mentioned, which carried the dry grass off paddocks and piled it against the fence, darkened the air with dust, and seemed to promise rain. But even it dispersed once it came, taking with it the few clouds it had gathered up, and for weeks and weeks at a stretch, from horizon to horizon, was never a speck tomorrow the cruel, dazzling brilliance of the mental sky. Weariness, weariness. I said the one thing many times, but, ah, it was a weary thing that took much repetition that familiarity might wear away a little of its bitterness. End of chapter 5 Recording by Ray Smith, Phoenix, Arizona